And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. Yeah, great question. You are the power. And you do not need anybody's permission. Great question. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. That is literally a brilliant question. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. This is part three of our four-part series on weight loss. And today, we are going to focus on doctors and the psychologists. So we're really going to delve deep about this. Now, before we begin, I don't know about you, but my scale is not my friend. It is a bastard, actually. And for some reason, the scale at home always says that I'm like four or five pounds heavier than the one at the gym. And I don't know what it is, but it's very mean, and I think it's possessed by the devil. Let us begin tonight's program. Joining us now is Dr. Elena George, an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. She's also author of a book, Big Medicine, The Cost of Corporate Control and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. We can learn more about it by going to our website, lanageorge.com. Dr. George, what are some of the ways that people can lose weight from your perspective? Well, I think going back to the basics is one of the easiest things to do. Um, watching your portions, making sure that you're not you know, double dipping and having seconds when you're not, when you don't want to, or when you shouldn't be making sure you stay hydrated because when you're dehydrated, sometimes the brain fools the body into thinking that you're actually hungry when you're actually thirsty. Um, not eating before bedtime. So you should have a cutoff nine, at 9 PM or about three hours before bedtime is the best time to stop. It allows the body to start burning fat overnight. Um, and that will do a lot to help you start shedding pounds. And if you can, you know. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm saying I'm really. That's right. Go ahead. I'm really thankful you brought up hydration because a couple months ago you told me to drink water. You said every time you're thirsty, drink water first. And I'd say mm-hmm. that um, that piece of advice really helped me to stop eating so much. People, I mean, it seems that people drink a lot of soda. When people are drinking a lot of soda, are they naturally going to become more dehydrated? I mean, is, is there a lot of water content in soda and carbonated drinks? Um, you know, it's not so much that. It's the sugar content that sabotages people. Okay. So you get a quick high, and then you want another one, and that's empty calories. So if you can maybe, you know, start making your own drink, um, lemonade, limeade, or really good choices, you can put um, – Stevia, I don't recommend um, NutraSweet or saccharin or any of the, those types of artificial um, sweeteners, even honey. You know, that will allow you to control the portions of sugar coming in, and it will be better digested because high fructose corn syrup really does do a number on your insulin, which is one of the major triggers for becoming fat and staying that way. If you look at America right now, it seems that there are a vast majority of people are overweight. And maybe people are very comfortable with this idea that, okay, it's not so bad because so many of us are overweight. What are some of the long-term health complications of being overweight or even of being obese? Well, we got diabetes, 
high blood pressure, um, sleep apnea, which has its own risks associated with it, not being able to get enough oxygen does actually make you more at risk for stroke um, and diabetes. Um, uh, it can affect your mood as well. I mean, the fact that you have so much uh, cortisol and stress hormones that are elevated can actually change how you handle stress, and that makes you more inclined to eat more and get heavier. So it's like a domino. You really have to go back to the basics. You have to think about what you're putting into your mouth, and if you can make most of it and not depend on processed foods, you're already going a long way to helping yourself. And if you are going to, let's say, for example, a person is going to be heavy, they have a set weight in mind, is there any comparable difference to a body that weighs a certain amount that is uh, very muscular and to one that is not muscular? If, you're, if you happen to have more muscle than you do fat, but even though you are overweight, does that change the picture at all? Does that make your heart work any less? Are you putting yourself at less risk by having more muscles or having a more muscular composition? Well, not necessarily. But, I mean, if you're carrying fat in the abdominal area, that puts you at risk for heart disease. So it depends on your body type, where the fat is distributed. People who have it in the lower parts, you know, the hip area, don't don't carry a higher risk for cardiac issues. But those in the center mass, they do. So, I mean, look at yourself in the mirror. Look at your family history. Look at your habits. I mean, there's nothing good about being... Sit, you know, having a sedentary lifestyle where you're eating processed food sitting on the couch, that doesn't help anybody. I don't care what their family history or their genetic makeup is. It's time to get active and to start, you know, taking care of yourself. And an hour a day, actually studies have shown seven minutes of extreme high intensity training where you go, you know, you work until you can't, you know, you lose your breath and then you wait and you do it in intervals. That's just as effective as an hour on a treadmill. If you're doing that, you're doing the uh, high-intensity training, is that inherently putting a fight, flight or flight chemical release into your brain? Is it, is it having the same thing? And also, if you are going from zero to high-intense training, could, you, could your body actually produce a substantial amount of crystal? Uh, which would actually you know, increase your weight because you, it's such a shock that your body is going from resting state to a very um, hyperathletic state? No, because you're doing, you have downtime where you can recover, but you will increase your gr growth hormone, you will increase your aerobic um, uh, baseline so you become much more efficient. Um, it burns, um, you know, glucose or the glycogen storage, so you start burning fat, which is the way you stay lean. It actually has a really good, um, I should say, uh, uh, how can I put it? From a metabolic standpoint, it increases your metabolic rate. But you really should be cleared by your physician to make sure that you, you can do that. You shouldn't just start off doing that. Make sure you have a medical clearance, and then you can start. And, and it's just even walking, honestly. Anything you can do to get your heart rate up is a good thing. And Dr. George, we've previously spoken, you've been a very passionate advocate about probiotics. Is there a possibility to just explain real quick why you feel so strongly about a probiotic and how that one can actually um, have a substantial impact on your weight as well as your moods? Because it's integral to having your immune system and your digestive system work properly. The body is made in such a way that you need 
the good yeast and good bacteria in the gut to help you digest your food, to help you block um, viruses and bad bacteria, bad yeast from overgrowing in the system. It helps the GI tract eliminate, you know, with elimination, and it's, it's part of good health. And eating things like uh, high fructose corn syrup, sugar, gluten, anything that causes inflammation in your body can actually deplete that. Even uh, you know, things like glyphosate, which is in genetically modified foods, that also wipes out the good yeast and good bacteria. So you really have to reset yourself so you have as much advantage as you can possibly have. Dr. Elena George, ear, nose, and throat surgeon, again, author of the phenomenal book, Big Medicine, The Cost of Corporate Control and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. You can learn more about her by going to her website at drdrelenagegeorge.com. Dr. George, real pleasure and honor to have you with us today. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. Gregory Ellis, Ph.D., CNN. You can learn more about him by going to his website at biomedacademy.com. Dr. Ellis, in all of your years in researching weight loss, what are some of the most profound conventional wisdom ideas about weight loss that we have that you believe or have found to be completely and totally wrong? Well, the problem today, I think, is that it's become a very commercial enterprise. And, for example, if you notice, all the major weight loss companies are selling prepackaged foods because they've discovered that all the things they previously recommended did not work. So now anyone who wants to join up with, say, Nutrisystem or South Beach Diet, are being, they're all being sold prepackaged foods. And if you watch the television commercials, they show these giant plates full of food. <laughs> and the stunning thing about weight control is that we know all we need to know about how it works. We don't need any more research. And people are constantly researching it, which presents a lot of problems because it's the main problem out there is the endless amount of confusion. What do you think is the key to weight loss? Well, the key to weight loss, and I, I presented this information myself uh, well over a decade ago, and I was sold on the notion that it's the calorie theory. Okay. And that has come under the gun so much these days because when people try and follow the calorie theory, they find that it does not work. And what's the calorie so theory? The calorie theory says that your weight will be controlled by the amount of calories you consume versus the amount of calories that you expend. Okay. That's the calorie theory. And, but there's a lot of variations within that that people know nothing about. So when they try to use it, it just does not work that well. I'll give you an example. Years ago when I was trying to reduce my, body, my own body fat levels very low, I discovered after several weeks that the amount of food that I was eating that had caused me to say lose 10 pounds was no longer causing me to lose any weight. And that's because my body had adapted to that reduced amount of calorie intake. And now I had to go lower. Well, no one understands that. 
you have to go lower. And uh, you take in World War II in Switzerland, the people were living on eight to 900 calories a day, and they were not losing weight. And it was projected that they, should, they would need as much as 2,400 calories a day. But obviously they didn't. That's how, that's how strongly the body adapts to calorie deprivation. So, of course, it won't work and does not work, and uh, people give it up, and that they then become fodder for all these different ideas out there about what does work, and then the endless speculations by physicians and psychologists and all kinds of experts who don't deal with the way the act, your, your body actually works, then they get all confused. So you're saying your body adapts. So what does that mean? Does that mean you have to constantly keep your body on edge and keep it guessing about what you're going to do in order to maximize your ability to burn calories? Well, you have to understand. First of all, you have to understand that you are going to adapt to a reduced calorie intake. And one of the arguments against that is the decrease in metabolism. Well, for the most part, that's true, but you really don't have any control over your metabolism. So there's not much you can do about that. So what you, you use the scale then, and the scale is telling you what's going on. So if you're eating a certain amount of food and you cease to lose weight, then you've got to cut back on your food intake and or exercise more. You mentioned before that carbs are not essential food items that they don't do anything for you. Yet we've heard the conventional wisdom saying, well, you know, no carbs are energy. Now, is it possible to get the same amount of energy from a carb without actually consuming one? Yeah, this is another problem with this whole weight loss industry. We are moving toward, as a society, towards vegetarian ideas. And it's become very a promotional that we should consume plant-based diets, not only for our weight, but for our health. And a plant-based diet, by definition, is going to be higher in carbohydrates. So you've got three main foodstuffs. You've got carbohydrates, you've got fat, and you've got protein. So fat, obviously, has been dissed for at least 50 years. So there won't be any support for the idea of consuming more fat, particularly saturated fat, as comes from, say, butter or or meat. But that's exactly what you should be doing. Now, what's unknown about car- what is known about carbohydrates is they will tend to make your you fat. They're very very rapidly converted once you've eaten them. They're converted into body fat in the cells of all the body. And you have no control over that because that's dictated by enzyme systems. So that's how that works. So people are fighting that thing all the time, fighting their own biochemistry, and that's a losing battle. You'll never win. You'll never win that. But never win that battle. And so, can you please give me a couple examples, maybe three or four, of the carbohydrates that people eat on a regular basis that they may not even be aware of that they're taking in? All carbohydrates are digested and then released into the body as glucose or blood sugar, Okay. all of them. Some take longer than others, but at the, after five, six hours, they're all going to be converted into glucose and released into the bloodstream, and people don't understand that idea. And the other problem that you've got is everybody has become convinced 
particularly because of the medical doctors and the scientific community, that carbohydrates are the primary fuel of the body. They are not. It's very important to understand. Fat is the primary fuel of the body. Uh, take, taking your heart, for example. The heart hardly burns any carbohydrates at all, but it does rely on fat as its primary source of energy. So by shifting into a vegetarian-style diet, you're going to be consuming a lot more carbohydrate, and then you're going to get all these problems associated with that. Now, the other major problem associated with carbohydrates that no one knows anything about is something called a glycated protein. Now, that is when the glucose from the carbohydrate binds to the proteins that make up your body. That's a glycated protein. That does a lot of damage to all parts of your body. Uh, all your major neurological diseases are coming because of glycated proteins. They actually eat holes in the brain. Jeez. And, and what are some again, of the main sources for these, by the way, so people, we can, people can at least try to avoid them? Well, they're all your all your fr your fruits, grains, uh, your starchy vegetables. Okay. Like lettuce is not a starchy vegetable, so that won't make a much of a problem. All the stuff that's supposedly supposed to be good for us that we're told every day to eat more of, grains, fruits, and vegetables, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, they're all very dangerous. Jeez, ah, it's, it's <laughs> you know it's cause it, it's tough to hear this, but you know we want to face the truth. But it's like it seems like everything that you want to eat that you can eat is somehow going to cause death or obesity. If you are there, five foods to simplify it that people can eat on a regular basis that are one not going to lead to immediate death and two going to put you on a path towards maybe weight loss. Well, none of them are going to lead to really to immediate death. They're I know. Really, I was just I was just kidding around. Yeah, they're first <laughs> going to go. You're first going to go through a whole disease process, okay. such as diabetes and osteoporosis and all that. And these are the diseases that are directly related to the amount of glycated proteins <laughs> that you consume. So all the stuff that's supposed to be good for us is not really good for us. So it's very difficult. And then the things that are actually good for us, like meat meat products that they say are not good for us, that they're dangerous to eat, particularly because of the content of fat. They're the things we should be eating, but we don't because we're being told every day of how dangerous these things are, both to health and to disease. Okay. When it comes to meat, there um, there's some people who listen to our show and won't consume meat for two reasons. One, because they, they don't agree with the... Um, the way the animals are treated, the barbarity, the way the animals are treated. And also, it's because of the hormones that they're ingesting into the meat. Do you think there could be a point where the meat will actually lose its nutritional value because of the way the animal is treated and because of the hormones that they pump into the animal in order for it to grow much faster or bigger than it normally would? No, it's not going to lose any of its nutritional value. Okay. The, the, the issue that I have, and this is where I, I come from, I, I speak about how your body actually works things you have no control over, what goes on in your body that you have no control over, that you're, you're programmed to be this way. It's like for breathing. You're programmed to breathe a certain number of times. You can't change that. You have no control over it. So you can bring up all these different arguments about uh, meat and why it's dangerous, but they're almost always based 
on some idea that has no real value in terms of what you're trying to accomplish okay. because they're just their ideas sure. well, there's no there's no fundamental understanding about how things actually work well, so when I tell people for example that from my perspective why carbohydrates for example are fattening they are converted very very quickly into fat by the body you have no control over it. You only have control over it in the sense that you can set things up so that doesn't happen by eating the right kind of foods that do not allow this conversion process to occur. What are the, are there, in addition to meat, are there any types of food groups that people can consume on a regular basis, even in moderation? that are healthy, that are actually going to be very good for you, very good for your body, and ultimately expedite your weight loss process? No real groups. I mean, you go back in time, in history, and we largely evolved on meat and animal products. That's just the facts. Uh, we hardly ever ate, particularly in the northern climes, like here in New York, on fruits and vegetables because you couldn't get them fresh. And it was only after the development of refrigerated train cars that this stuff could get into New York and people could actually get it. And now the whole thing has become... Once, once they decided that cholesterol was involved in the development of heart disease and its associated fat content, which usually they run hand-in-hand hand together, the whole thing was done for. It was suggested at that point that fat and cholesterol were cause of all these diseases and the idea of the different food groups evolved early around 1900 with the development of the United States Department of Agriculture and they in turn were supporting what farmers were growing and that led to the idea of these different food groups but previous to that time there was no such thing the food groups were animal products, meat, milk, things like that. Okay. So you, you, you can't make it this simplistic. But let's say, for example, you don't eat meat. Can you, can you eat nuts? Can you eat grains? Is there, any, is there anything you can consume that, in moderation that would be, that's relatively healthy? You say, okay, so you want to avoid carbs. Carbs, apparently, you just said go right to fat. Um, so maybe fat's the, the key or eating more fat is the key. What types of fats would be healthier or your body would um, benefit most from? Well, the exactly the type of fat they tell us not to eat. Okay. Saturated animal fat. Okay. So you could do your peanuts and your cashews and your other things like that, but they're going to have a reasonable amount of carbohydrate in them. So anytime you move toward a plant-based diet, which is what generally is happening because we're told it's healthier, you're going to consume more carbohydrates. And it's well established that uh, vegetarian-type consumers have more glycated proteins in their body. And, and then, of course, then the other thing that no one's talking about, I mean, no one's talking about <laughs> glycated proteins. Doctors aren't talking about it. No one's talking. No one knows anything about it. Now, the next thing that no one knows anything about 
is the effect of environmental pollutants. It's amazing. We talked about this uh, yesterday, and I was so shocked. Can you please uh, to, to elaborate more on this? The, so what we have now, you, you take an example. Like, you remember when, when the uh, outcry went on in Flint, Michigan, about the lead in the water? Yeah. Several months ago. That's an example of a massive problem with a lot of lead in the water. But there's no discussion at all of the amount of lead that people are consuming on a daily basis. And it is, it's absolutely a bad news neurotoxin. And in addition, there's 110,000 chemicals in commercial use, in plastic bottles, in, in clothing, in all kinds of stuff. And these have been shown very recently over the last decade to be something called obesogens. They turn the body's mechanisms on by which it begins to store food as fat. So it's something that, it, that it's called adipogenetic. The, it converts food into fat, so you actually increase your fat load. And it doesn't matter a heck of a lot as to even then what type of food, what type of food you eat. So you can see the conundrum. Here you've got an area where the type of food you eat, which we just talked about, is one of the issues, and with the persistent organic pollutants, now is causing the body, it's, it's disrupting its whole endocrine system. Well, so the whole hormonal system is being disrupted by these toxic chemicals, and they're all very long-lived. Once you consume them, they stay in your body for decades. All right, so it's... Oh, jeez, that's really... Horrible to hear. Are there any ways for people to avoid these types of chemicals? Is there is there things you can do less of? Are there places you sh you could be in at logic, uh, you know, on location that you should not be in? Uh, how can you avoid? No, some of the some of the most toxic places in the, in the environment are the poles, for example, the North Pole and South Pole. Really? Yeah, they've got uh, major problems with the animals up there being born with. No arms, no legs. What is that, what's that caused from? Because all the, the circulation in, in nature of all these different toxic chemicals just moves everything in that direction. Okay, so that's man-made chemicals that are directly impacting the environment, that are directly impacting the animals? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, it, and it's a major problem. And since no one knows anything about it, it's not a part of what's being taught in our medical schools or in any of our health oriented programs, no one knows anything about it. I, I oftentimes feel very burdened that I know so much about it because no one else does. And then I start talking to people about this stuff and they just, they just blank over. And I know how to help people get rid of this stuff. Well, how do you get rid of it? Well, you have to have special methods. Okay. Can you, you <laughs> which, I, which I have, which I've learned over the years on how to do it. Uh, there, for, there, there's several several methods, but one of them, for example, is something called biological uh, nutrition, where you lose, use specific herbs, for example, that bind this stuff up and send it out. Do you and, mind if I ask what some of those herbs are? Uh, milk thistle is one. It's a very good one. Milk thistle. It's called milk thistle. Milk, milk thistle. Uh, by the way, we're going to put up the list on our on our side about it. What's the other one? 
there's a whole bunch of them. So we, can we uh, learn more about them by going to your website? First off, uh, Dr. Ellis's website is biomedacademy.com to remind you. And uh, just to let her uh, know, I've met with uh, Dr. Ellis before, and I think he's well, well ahead of the curve with everything. I mean, this is, I met with you seven years ago. You were saying things about weight loss seven or eight years ago that are becoming much more accepted today, so you're very much on the, the edge and the curve of this. And I just want to ask you, as far as the other ones, what other uh, things did you have in mind? As far as plants, the, uh, as far as huh? yeah, as far as the other things you well, noticed. another another class of goods that's very good at helping get rid of this stuff is is homeopathic remedies. Okay, but again, they're they're castigated by the medical community as not working, so people are going to avoid using them. And, and and there's a lot of practitioners out there who will do nutrition work. They won't do homeopathic remedies because they just march in line with what the medical and scientific communities say. I don't do that. I, I look for the truth and look for things that actually work, and then when I find them, I use them. And in fact, that's what I do with most of my clients in my clinical nutrition practice. I help them eliminate their accumulated load of these different toxins. And that's important to understand. These toxins are getting in there. And they're staying for 10, 15, 20 years. Lead, for example, has a half-life, meaning your body will automatically get rid of half of it in 17 years. So if, if people go on a diet, or it's called the master cleanse diet, or they go on and they do intermittent fasting, is that something that can actually purge themselves <laughs> from toxins? Or if they, if you have to understand some of the the language. The, there's a model that's been out there for 100 years called death begins in the colon. And most of these alternative health practitioners buy into that idea. So they do things to help someone stimulate a removal from their colon of, as they say, of collected residue or collected waste matter. The colon is not the place where the toxicity is actually occurring. The colon is an exit point. It's when the toxins come out of the body and they've got to be eliminated, then they go through the colon. So the liver and the kidneys are the primary excretory organs for these things. But the site of damage is inside the cells, particularly in a little organ now called the mitochondria. And the mitochondria is the powerhouse of all the cells of our body. That's what produces the energy we use. So every day, people's mitochondria are getting poisoned. Jeez. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems. Oh, my God. All right. So there's so many different options that people have out there to lose weight, to attempt to lose weight. If you're going to say, bottom line, these are the t three things you could start doing today to begin to lose weight, what three recommendations would you recommend? Well, mo most of the options, and there are, as you say, tons of them, are useless. Okay. They're, they're no good at all. Diet composition is an important thing, meaning a reduction in the overall amount of carbohydrates, uh, the value of, shall we say, long-standing low-calorie production or release in terms of exercise, and you don't have to go out and kill yourself exercising to do that. And you just have to move more. In fact, it's recently been discovered that 
standing a lot during the course of the day is very good, too. So they're the primary two things. But what they do primarily is regulate this the energy metabolism part, the calorie. They work on the calorie theory. And the next thing to do is to get out there and start working on the elimination of these toxins from your body because they're disrupting everything so much. So there would be the, they would be the top three things that I would recommend. Okay. And that's what I do with most of my clients. Okay. And Dr. Ellis, the last question I have for you is if you go to the gym and you put muscle on and you really focus on strength training, building muscles, is your body going to burn more calories sustaining the muscles? Is it going to burn more calories? Is it going to burn more, more calories uh, to sustain the muscles rather than burn calories if you're doing more cardio? I just want to know what's more what's more effective. Is it more effective to do cardio? Well, this is one of the this is one of the great myths okay. that's out there. Muscle at rest is not metabolically very active. Okay. Barely much more so and fat tissue. So let's say you add 10 pounds of muscle, all right? That muscle at rest, which is for the most of the day now, is not going to burn many calories. So this is a promotion that's seen everywhere. Go out and add muscle and you become a fat-burning machine. It's simply not true because muscle at rest does not burn many calories. I think it burns maybe five calories over 24 hours, whereas a pound of fat will burn uh, two calories over 24 hours. So wow. you see there's simply not much difference. No, it's different. Okay. Dr. Greg Ellis, Ph.D., CNN. You can learn more about him by going to his website at biomedacademy.com. Dr. Ellis, it was a great pleasure speaking to you today, sir. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks a lot. Joining us now is Dr. Adrian Udeem, Director of the Center of Weight Loss and Nutrition in Beverly Hills. We can learn more about her by going to her website at dradrianudeem.com. Dr. Udeem, welcome to the program. And what are some of the inconsistencies that you're noticing about Americans' nutrition and why are people in America tend to be nutritionally deficient? Well, nutrition is a pretty broad category. Um, if you're speaking about uh, vitamin deficiencies, when we talk about deficiencies, we are usually referring to vitamins. Um, there is one in particular that is extremely prevalent, and that is vitamin D deficiency. Um, vitamin D is a vitamin that we synthesize in the skin uh, by being exposed to sunlight. But even in sunny California, the prevalence or the incidence of deficiency is in some studies 60 to 70 percent, much less places like, um, I don't know, Michigan, where you don't have as much sunlight as you have here. But the issue of nutrition is kind of a broader one, and I think the nutritional dilemma that we're really facing in this country is um, one that, you know, is uh, well known to all of us. We've heard about it in the news, etc., and that is the problem of overweight and obesity. Dr. Udeem, do you think that people are consuming so much food today because they're not getting the nutritional value, daily nutritional value that they should be getting? So 
by not getting that daily nutritional value, they're consuming a lot more calories than they normally would? You know, if we're talking with respect to the issue of excess weight, um, you know, overeating or or probably a better way of putting it is eating calorically dense or highly caloric foods is definitely, you know, an issue um, or a factor. Being sedentary and not moving around as much is definitely a factor. But it's interesting because after many years of always talking about this calorie in, calorie out situation, um, we now know that there's a lot of other factors that play into poor nutrition or specifically the likelihood to gain excess weight. Um, One, for example, is uh, environmental uh, factors. So, for example, BPA, which is found in plastic items, um, plastic water bottles, for example, um, is believed to be an endocrine disruptor or one of those compounds that actually affects our hormonal status that makes excess weight or gaining weight even more likely or or makes us more likely to be overweight or obese. So the calorie issue and the food issue and the excess consumption is a factor uh, for sure, but we now know there's a lot of other factors at play, one of which is, you know, this environmental disruptor that uh, is just increasing our likelihood of becoming overweight or obese. Do you ever notice any correlation between the types of food a person will eat and the weight loss and the amount of weight that they have in relation to certain foods produce or allow your brain to produce more serotonin, which allows you to feel happier and better? And I'm wondering if you are eating foods that are higher in serotonin and you overall have a happier mood, chemically speaking, are you less inclined to be depressed and less inclined to be putting on more weight. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. I mean, I think it's more a matter of, um, you know, as you as you point out, it's a matter of adequate nutrition um, and having all of your needs met through good food. So that includes vitamins, minerals. Um, it includes uh, micronutrients. It includes macronutrients like protein, um, carbohydrates. Um, yes, you need a balanced diet that has all of those necessary vitamins, minerals, micro and macronutrients in order to have uh, good nutrition and therefore have good energy as well as you know ability to go about uh, or execute your daily functions properly. Um, when people are, for example, depleted in uh, protein, uh, that does lead to um, more hunger. It does lead to poor energy. Uh, another example is carbohydrates. You know, we, in this country, we've kind of associated carbs uh, with evil, but there's different kinds of carbs, of course. The refined or processed carbohydrates, the simple sugars uh, is another way of putting it, are those that cause quick rises in, of sugar in the bloodstream and then quick crash as a result of the insulin response. And that makes people feel lethargic and slow and poor energy. It also is associated with a lot of, in some people, kind of GI symptoms or gastrointestinal symptoms that people attribute to gluten, but I think is really more a function of these processed carbohydrates. On the other hand, if you're having more complex carbohydrates, um, good grains, for example, whole grains, um, uh, 
something like barley, for example, has gluten, but it's a complex carbohydrate. It's going to cause a steady rise of blood sugar, not a quick precipitous rise and precipitous fall. Um, that fiber in the barley is actually helpful in preventing disease. It's also a nutrient that is necessary and gives us energy. So, you know, people are uh, withholding carbohydrates, not recognizing that not all carbohydrates are the same. Um, and then even in, this, in the context of vitamins and minerals, there are vitamins and minerals that are um, kind of loosely associated with mood. There's some data that show uh, B vitamins, if they're depleted, to be associated with poor mood. Uh, B12 deficiency can result in um, depression. Believe it or not, severe deficiency can even result in psychosis. Um, so, so vitamins and minerals are important too. So, yeah, it's a it's a balanced diet of all of the above. The people that you've observed that are in very good shape, do you notice that they have a surplus or a, a healthy amount of vitamins, or these types of vitamins in them? You know, I think the people who are eating a well balanced, healthy diet and are getting these um, nutrients from food are faring the best. And along those lines, people who are physically active, who are exercising, who are exercising outdoors and getting the benefit of physical activity and getting the benefit of being outside in nature are also, um, you know, as a result, healthier individuals. There's benefits to all of these things, good diet, um, physical activity. Activity in and of itself, even if it doesn't change an individual's weight, is associated with reduced incidence of heart disease, diabetes, depression, uh, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, depression. I mean, the list is uh, endless. It's actually even associated with reductions in certain types of cancers. So it's not even a matter of weight. It's just a matter of being active. And, And so I see physical activity as a kind of a nutrient as well, as a necessary uh, or a necessity to good health. And so, yes, when people are, are getting these things from, uh, getting these nutrients from good food, from being outside and from being active, they are, as a result, much healthier. And the medical studies really support that. Are there any types of foods that you can think of that would reduce, I don't know, emotional eating or reduce your hunger? Again, I really am a proponent of a balanced diet, but the studies are showing that protein is that nutrient that is signaling fullness to the brain. So uh, when you eat, you get a release of hormones from your intestines that signal to your brain that you're full and to stop eating, and it appears that having protein or more protein um, is the nutrient or the macronutrient that gives that greatest signal to the body. Um, but at the same token, fruits and vegetables, specifically vegetables, are super low calorie, um, and they take up a lot of uh, real estate, so to speak, in the stomach. (laughs) And so, you know, coupling your protein with a healthy amount of vegetables is also going to enhance fullness, and I recommend to my patients to double their food volume with vegetables. And then finally, um, those carbs we spoke about before, I don't recommend an endless amount, but incorporating a half cup or so to a cup of those good carbohydrates, which I uh, include the, the beans, the grains, the legumes, um, that fiber will help you keep full as well. Dr. Adrian Udeem, Director of the Center for Weight Loss and Nutrition in Beverly Hills, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. 
to learn more about Dr. Udeem, please go to our website at dradrianudeem.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, that was fun. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. David Bartley. He's an oral and metaphysical surgeon and founder of Silver Eagle Media, a company that is dedicated to helping individuals increase their cognitive ability and perform at their highest intellectual level. You can learn more about him by going to his website at smarternextyear.com. Dr. Bardsley, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So what do you see as some of the biggest challenges for people who want to lose weight? Is there anything that you've observed about the human body over the course of maybe the last 20 or 30 years to how people's diets are changing? Is there anything that you find is to be the common norm as to why people struggle to lose weight? Well, there's there's no question. There's there's there are several things. You know, first of all, our, our nutrition is drastically different than what it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, food companies, large food companies, have 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 bands of scientists working on how to get us addicted to various foods, particularly you know what 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 type of sweeteners they use. Uh, what the flavors of food are, because it's it's big business. Food is big business, and uh, so one of the biggest things, of course, is the sugar content of food. So I mean, there's there's nothing really new when it comes to losing weight. It, it, it's it's a two pronged uh, process. It's it's your nutrition and your activity level, and uh, certainly most of us fall down on nutrition without even knowing that we're doing that. The, the amount of sugar that's in food today is just incredible, and it's disguised. It's often disguised as high fructose corn syrup, or they'll say, you know, oh, it's cane sugar, pure cane sugar, as if that's more healthy than you know, regular <laughs> table sugar. And, and wheat, wheat is, wheat is converted to sugar. You know, there's a, an index that's used in science called the glycemic index, and, and, of course, pure sugar is at the absolute highest. So it's assigned a value of 100, pure glucose. Well, pure glucose has, has a glycemic index of 100. White table sugar has a glycemic index of 67. Flour, wow. whether it's whole wheat or white flour, has a glycemic index of 72. White flour will actually raise... Your blood sugar and brown flour is is uh, will raise it just the same, although brown flour will have more nutrients in it. But they will raise a, a tablespoon of, of flour will raise your your blood sugar level higher and faster than a tablespoon of pure white sugar, pure white table sugar. You know, and these things are just insidious to put into everything. So the first thing people need to do is they need to educate themselves as as uh, you know to to what the various types of sugar are that that are put into our foods in disguise so that we don't notice it in read labels i mean you have to understand the labels and people need to educate themselves in that because now almost all food they have to put by law they have to put not just ingredients and you can get a good idea from the ingredients by reading what's what's put in it and also looking at the nutritional breakdown into fats carbohydrates and proteins and uh, it's 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 just it's just incredible. With, you know, you pick up a box of whatever, a cereal, and read what's in it, and it's 
and that wasn't the same 70 years ago, 80 years ago. So that's changed drastically. You know, the amount of sugar in her diet and the amount of wheat in her diet is just incredible, and it's insidious, you, and, and people don't even realize it. Do you think it's been done deliberately to get people addicted to the food so they'll consume more, or do you think it's been done more Absolutely. or less? Do you think it has something to do with just trying to create more product at a cheaper rate using second-grade products? What Do you, do you think it's, you think it's well, more it's, about addiction? It's, it's, it's both, well, it's both of those. I, I certainly agree with you. When, when a better product can be used, if they can go to a cheaper one, a more economical one, they'll certainly do that. But it's, it's, it's done to, you know, if you give a child, uh, you know, a choice between, you know, a, a non-sweetened or a sweetened cereal, they'll go for the sweetened cereal 100% of the time. 100% oh. of the time. You know, they're never given the option of the unsweetened cereal. And so, this, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tremendous body of evidence that's showing that we're, we're literally more addicted to food than our grandparents were. Oh, so we're more addicted to food. Do you? It's really strange. When I was growing up, I remember I used to love going to McDonald's. It was fun. It was happy. Now, ever since I saw that documentary by Morgan Spurlock, it's as if the food there it's 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 made out of fucking tires and products and rubber and all kinds of other yeah. cars. It's like it's worse than smoking. It seems like it's worse to eat fast food than it is to smoke a cigarette. I guess in some capacities. I, I don't know what happened. I, I still don't understand why, why humanity itself would not think to just maybe make food that's healthy. I, you think there's a, a, a ultimate motive behind this? Or is, I mean, it's like maybe it goes beyond making money because they feel like, okay, you eat the food, you get sick, it serves two purposes. One, it probably benefits the pharmaceutical industry because they have to provide drugs and they make a lot of money off that, treating all the you know ailments that come with eating terrible food. And you've got the weight loss industry that probably makes a lot of money from people who now have to go into the treadmill five or six times a week in order to burn off the calories from eating toxic food. I just want to know if you see it from that perspective, if you see that there's some kind of if, – if it's more of an industry uh, movement that, that purposely does this. Well, I think the industry, you know, they're businesses. And businesses, you know, the purpose of a business is, for most businesses, is to turn a profit. And the more profit they turn, the better the shareholders like it, the better the board of directors likes it. So they do whatever they can within the legality of, of our legal system. And, and certainly there are some constraints put on them, not a whole lot, but there are some constraints. They'll do whatever they can within that, you know, to make people eat more food. I mean, you you sell more food. You make more money. That's the bottom line. And everything, everything that we see, look at our advertisements on, on television. Have you have you ever seen a, a a big? Have you ever seen a McDonald's ad or, or, or an ad for for cereal or anything? You know, eat it in, in eat it in moderate quantities or in no in the, this minimal is, quantities. Get a funnel. It's, no, it's like let's supersize, supersize yeah. everything. <laughs> you know, more more is better. More is better. It's just being laid down the garden path. And I saw a documentary not too long ago. It was very interesting, and it was about obesity in the inner cities and in the poverty areas. And you drive, drive through some of these poverty areas, particularly in bigger cities, and the people are huge. And you think, well, if there's poverty, wouldn't you think they would be small, thin, emaciated-looking people? But the problem, which they very clearly showed in the documentary, is they drove down the streets. There were no supermarkets. There was no fresh fruit and vegetables available, even if they could afford it. It just wasn't there. It was the only choices for fast food. 
and those people don't have a car, they don't have money for transportation, they can't get in a taxi and say, you know, drive me five miles to the other side of the city where I can go to a supermarket, and at least they have a choice of buying some fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. They just don't have that choice. The only thing that's available to them, you know, in their geographic area is basically fast food. And we wonder why even on, with a limited budget, people can be so obese. It's incredible. There's a, some talk or theories that say, okay, well, the difference between 70 years ago and today is people live a more sedentary lifestyle. They're on iPhones. They can go basically – they can stay inside their house, play Nintendo, watch TV, movies. And um, you know, I, I think I, – I imagine that's probably true to a degree. But do you think that even if the people of 70 years ago had all those gadgets, would they still likely be the same size and weight? Or do you think the food is hands down the dominant reason why people have I, – I would say they're pretty much equal. I would okay. say it's lack of activity and diet. I think those are – I think they're basically equal. You know, and on certain individuals, they, they may have a better diet and they have absolutely no activity. So in that individual, it may be 80-20, you know, 20% diet, 80% lack of, of, of physical activity. But for the average – I think it's about fifty-fifty. I think I think half of the culprit is a poor diet, and the other half is our is our lack of activity. When people are addicted to sugars and they're addicted to other ingredients, do you think that the addictions themselves, whether people realize it or not, are the underlying reasons why they can't garner enough motivation to take their health into their own hands? Like some people say, well, you know, I don't for some reason I don't have the motivation to go to the gym. Or I don't have the uh, will to pull myself off these foods. And I'm really wondering if it's the foods themselves that the addictive qualities of the foods that are actually maybe hijacking the neurons in the person's brain and body to prevent them from actually taking steps and initiatives to improve their health. I don't know if you've ever come across something like that. Well, certainly when, 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 you're, when you're addicted, I mean, these, are, these, these foods change the balance of the neurotransmitters in your brain. And 100% of how we feel right now at any given moment in time, it actually has very little to do with how many brain cells we have. It has anything to do with what's the balance of these neurotransmitters that allows the, the, the electrical signal to pass from and the information to pass from one brain cell to another. And drugs, uh, you know, drugs can be highly addictive. You know, they change those neurotransmitters, but so does food. You know, there's, there's not a, you know, the, most drug addicts, I shouldn't say there's not a drug addict in the world, but most drug addicts would love to get off whatever it is that they're, that they're addicted to. But they, they say, well, I just, I can't do it. I don't have the motivation. I don't have the willpower. You know, and it's exactly the same with food. Food can be a terribly, terribly strong addiction. As difficult as alcohol, as difficult as drugs or smoking to try to get off. Foods, there's no question, today's foods are highly addictive. So it's a double-edged sword again. It's not just the person's lack of willpower. Those are powerful, powerful addictions. And you know, people need help in trying to in trying to break that addiction. They need, they, they need to, there are obviously things that they need to do, but they also need support. Just the same as, you know, of all the programs out there for alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous is still has been the most successful. And that comes from support from other people suffering from that same addiction and just trying to deal with it day by day by day. So do you think and that if people are looking at their at looking at their excessive weight 
as an addiction that they're addicted to the same way as alcohol that that changes the entire mindset or puts oh, them in a mold. Okay. Of course it does. You you bet. And it changes how they view themselves, and it changes how how, how they look at their self worth. You know, I, I don't think there's a single overweight person that had they given the choice would say, "Well, I, I'm I I would rather be overweight." This this is this is I like being overweight. Nobody ever says that ever. You know, they seem it seems powerless to some people, or they feel they're powerless to do something about it, or if they tried many times and they have a bit of success, and then they have a rebound failure and a bit more success, and then they relapse again, and you know it's a yo 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 dieting scenario, and many many people go through that, and I think it gets very discouraging for them, and they you know they eventually just give up and say, well, I just I just can't do it. I just can't do it. You have so many people whose dietary habits have changed over the course of the last 70 years, and they're taking in a lot more fat, eating a lot more sugar. In terms of the evolution of the species, though, do you think that the body will eventually be able to adapt and be able to become healthy under the circumstances of ingesting so much saturated fat, so much sugar, that this is going to become a norm where even though a lot of people are struggling from heart disease, they're having all these other health elements, that eventually the bodies themselves will be able to adjust to accommodate the uh, new norm, which is kind of disturbing. Do you, do you foresee that happening in the next 20 or even 100 years? No. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe in several hundred thousand years that may happen. Okay. But it's not, it's not going to happen in the, next, in the next 50 or 100 years. Okay. No, that isn't, that, there's no chance in hell that that's going to happen. Okay. Not a chance. So if you sit around just waiting, thinking the things are going to change, it's it's not going to be in our lifetime or anywhere close to it. It's so wishful thinking. That's what we do in the Outer Limits. We, uh, we explore all possibilities. Dr. David Bartley, I want to thank you so much for your time. Great insight. Really appreciate it. To learn more about Dr. Bartley, please go to his website at smarternextyear.com. Take good care. Okay, thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes part three of our four-part series on weight loss. Special thanks to our amazing guest. And for part four, we're going to focus on the metaphysical and spiritual aspects of weight loss. Stay tuned. And to learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. <laughs>